would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. We're trying to finish the book before the year 2024. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who has made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have, have it to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed 
as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's a mouthful. There's a lot there. We're going to try to summarize it as best we can. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help again uh, by uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, working through our minds, working in our hearts, certainly giving us uh, the word of life. Lord, may we receive it with faith and, and with much gratitude and with praise and prayer, Lord, that this would be not only applied to us, but that we might glory in the salvation of Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So I found out this week the name for my psychological disorder. That's right. Apparently, I have what is called blood injection injury phobia. Something less than 5% of the human population struggles with. The first time I realized that I had this problem was when I was in fifth grade. I was watching a movie in science class on the human eyeball. All of a sudden, I got really cold and dizzy. The room started to spin, and I hit the floor. Um, once the teacher realized what had happened, set me back up, I was fine again. And then I started watching the film again. And again, same symptoms, got cold, got dizzy. This time, I just I was sitting at my desk. I went straight down, hit my head on the desk twice, was out cold. And uh, the teacher finally came over to get me after I had fainted three times removed me from the science class and from that horror film that they were showing, took me to the nurse and finally figured out that there was some other issue that I was struggling with. Um, now, I've been struggling with it my whole life. I can't tell you how many times I fainted from cutting myself or some other thing of that nature. And Finally, as an adult, I've learned how to, uh, to minimize the effects, and I put my head down, and I'm fine, you know, the whole bit. But I know that six foot six, it's a long way down. And so it's really not a good thing to have. Unfortunately, psychologists today still have no idea what causes this. No idea. All they know is that there's a sudden drop in blood pressure for those who have this phobia. Immediately, they lose the blood to their brain. Evolutionists have suggested that my ancestors somehow survived in war by fainting. For by lying on the ground, unconscious, in a losing battle, looking dead, they were passed over by the enemy and lived. One more reason why I do not bind evolution. It makes all my ancestors a bunch of wusses in battle. Uh, nevertheless, I'm beginning to see, thankfully, that my kids have not developed this same trait as I have, at least not to the same extent. I remember when they were younger, I had one of my daughters... Every time we would sing about the blood of Christ, she put her hands over her ears, not wanting to listen to that. Um, thankfully, she's not the same way now. But if you think about it, quite a few of the hymns that we sing are about the blood of Christ. Have you noticed how many there are? There, there are a lot more than you might imagine. Some of them are the more obvious ones. For example, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, or what can wash away my sin? It, it's, it's, it's crazy how deep it gets. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Or there is a fountain filled with, drawn from, that sounds kind of horrible, doesn't it? Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the, of the Lamb. There's a fountain filled with blood, as I said, but are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Over and over and over again, we keep singing about these things. It's, it's really quite strange when you think about it that we're constantly singing about blood. In fact, there are a number of non-Christians that have uh, pointed that out to us and say that we're a bunch of crazy people obsessed with blood. I mean, if you think about it, any other person that, that we have loved and, and has passed away, can you imagine us after their death constantly singing about their bloodshed? It doesn't make sense to a, a non-Christian, especially because they don't understand the purpose behind it. But I, for one, am not obsessed with blood. I assure you of that. Um, but I am captivated by what the blood of Christ symbolizes for us as Christians. And that's essentially what the author of Hebrews is pointing out in this text. Eleven times he keeps bringing up the concept of the blood of the covenant and why that's so important for us to understand. In the previous chapter, chapter 8, uh, the author of Hebrews was again explaining how Jesus is a much greater high priest than that of Aaron. And, it, and in that context, he began to talk about because there is a new priest, it's come about because there's a new covenant. And he sort of touched on it, but he never really explained it fully, at least not until the chapter that's before us this morning. And again, the main point of his argument, he's been building up to this for the last number of chapters, that he's finally saying, do not ever go back toward the old ways, toward the old temple sacrifices. Do not revert back to Judaism. You have a sacrifice that has been done and has been accomplished once for all in Jesus Christ. Therefore, never go back to the old ways. Now, this is a pretty big deal. For God's people have been drawing near to him through sacrifice for thousands of years. Even since the Garden of Eden, from the very first sin, it had to be covered through the shedding of blood. We see that. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, God had promised them, even before they had sinned, God had promised them that this would be the case, that blood had to be shed. And now finally, with the coming of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, finally we see the Lamb of God has come who has shed his own blood to take away the sins of the world. Why? Why is this so important, the shedding of blood? Now, I want to share with you this morning from this long chapter three reasons why the shedding of blood is such an integral component of the gospel and why we cannot ignore it, cannot pass over it, cannot push it away. Uh, this concept of a substitution through blood is so important that we miss the gospel entirely if we don't get it. So here are the three reasons why the shedding of blood of Christ in particular is necessary. First, it shows the seriousness of our sin and the purchase price of our pardon. Second, it shows the cutting of a new covenant and the inauguration of our inheritance. Third, it shows the cleansing of our conscience and the attainment of our atonement. I'll explain that again later. But uh, here's, the, here's the three one more time. The seriousness, of our, the seriousness of our sin and the purchase of our pardon. The cutting of a covenant 
and the inauguration of our inheritance, and then third, the cleansing of our conscience and the attainment of our atonement. Let's begin with number one. The shedding of blood shows us the seriousness of our sin and the price of our pardon. As you know, in the Garden of Eden, when God had originally commanded them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he told them that on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And indeed, death entered the world the moment that he ate from the tree. But we know that he didn't immediately die in in the sense of physical death. It began a slow process where he lived almost a thousand years before he finally passed away. Nevertheless, death had entered into the world. And God had to cover his sin and his nakedness in some way or another. And so we see that he uses these animal skins that are meant to symbolize a substitution of a life for a life. Death for death. Now, although we don't have a full theology of the sacrificial offerings early on in the Old Testament prior to the coming of the law, prior to the time of Moses, we clearly see that Cain and Abel are commended to bring a sacrifice of some kind unto God. The same way we see Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all bringing these sacrifices, not only for the sense of consecration, but also for atonement for sin. But it's not until we get to the law of Moses that we see a, a fuller understanding of this sacrificial system when God brings the law and, and establishes the blueprints for the tabernacle in order that people might be uh, might draw up close to the Lord. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the the construction of the tabernacle itself in the midst of Israel, on the one hand, was meant to show them that God's desire was to dwell in their midst, to draw near to them. But on the other hand, the tabernacle also was a way of constantly keeping the average sinner from getting too close to God, or else he would die because of his sin. And so this concept of a substitution of life for life was symbolized by the shedding of blood that showed just how much God really hates our sin, how much God really takes this seriously, and how much God will keep his promise from the very beginning that the consequences, the wages of sin is death every time, without exception. I mean, think about it. If God would take the lives of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden for eating a piece of fruit, and if he would take the lives of an entire generation of Israelites for grumbling and complaining in the wilderness, how can we not think that he will take the life of anyone for any sin because of his holiness and because of the seriousness of our sin to make sure that the Israelites understood this concept, the sacrificial system was inaugurated through the tabernacle and through the law of Moses to remind the Jews on a daily basis that he hates sin, absolutely hates it. I mean, think about it. Every single morning, every single evening, something had to die in order for God to dwell in their camp. Without exception, every day, death had to occur in order that they might live in God's presence. Even with the dedication of the tabernacle itself, as we explained last week in Exodus chapter 24, there's blood everywhere. Look at our text in verse 19. Notice how everything is covered with blood. 
It says he took, Moses was commanded by God, he took the blood of the calves and the goats, sprinkled the book of the covenant, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels in worship. Again, uh, very common, uh, they would take this hyssop branch and dip it into a bowl of blood and just shake it and, and sprinkle everything with blood. He would go inside the tabernacle in the outer courtyard and first sprinkle that bronze altar, then go inside, sprinkle the walls of the tabernacle, sprinkle the the furniture inside the tabernacle. He would go in and then he would sprinkle blood on this high priest, Aaron, who's dressed in white garments, blood sprinkled all over him, all over his face, all over his hands. And then sprinkle all the people with the blood. And then finally, before the Ark of the Covenant could ever be situated there behind the veil, he had to go in and sprinkle blood all over the Ark of the Covenant. Blood is everywhere. I mean, think about it. Blood is all over the floor of the tabernacle. It's, it's completely consumed with blood. Why? Verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And that was before any of the offerings even took place. Blood is everywhere before the first official sacrifice for atonement. Later on, we, we get a glimpse of just how much blood is shed, not just on the holidays, not just on Sabbath days in that sense, but on every ordinary day of the year. But from the passage that David read earlier, it's an extraordinary day. First Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, we see how Solomon offered unto the Lord, did you catch the number? 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep in one day. Now, I was reading somewhere this week that uh, typically the amount of blood collected from each animal would be different depending upon uh, the size of the animal. Typically, a, a quarter of blood was taken from each sheep and a gallon of blood from each ox. That would equate... <laughs> That would equate to 52,000 gallons of blood. Or if you want to put it in barrels, 1,650 barrels of blood that were collected on that day to make atonement, to dedicate, to consecrate the people of God. Again, that's an extraordinary day. Uh, it didn't happen any other time. But if you think about the Passover that happened every year, on average at least 20,000 animals were sacrificed. And there'd be this long line of men coming into the tabernacle, <laughs> carrying a lamb on their shoulder, waiting for their turn for the priest to come and slit its throat and then let the blood drain down. Uh, apparently, within the last 20 years, archaeologists have found something of a, a trough uh, that would take the excess blood away from the temple down into the Kidron Valley so that the priests are not literally walking up to their ankles in blood. Blood's everywhere. Again, why? Why so much blood? I mean, this is ridiculous, it seems, especially in the eyes of the unbeliever. Leviticus 17, 11. This is, this is the main passage that is constantly pointed to to explain why so much blood. There, the Lord says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So it's not just that, that God just really likes a lot of blood everywhere. 
And it's not that you can just take a bunch of blood from different animals in the sense that, you know, we'll preserve the life of the animal, but just take a bunch of blood from a, a whole bunch of different animals. But it's that the life, the, the blood symbolizes the substitution of a life for a life. A death for a death. But the author tells us in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Indeed, there's a price for our pardon. I think we sometimes forget that forgiveness is not free. There's a price for our forgiveness. There's a purchase that was been paid that we might be forgiven of our sins. We don't think of it often that way, but if you think of you know, how we often in the Lord's Prayer will say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, something that we owe. Well, if someone forgives us our debts, they still have to be paid right? I remember a number of years ago, there was a young man that um, the parking lot hit my car, and um, you know it banged up the, the backside of the car pr- pretty good, but it seemed like it wasn't going to be the end of the world, and I finally just said to the guy, I didn't have time for the, the police and the insurance and all that type of stuff. I was like, yeah, don't worry about it. I got it, and he went on. His car wasn't even half as damaged as mine was. And uh, I didn't officially say, I forgive you, <laughs> but I said, you know, well, let's go on with our lives, you know, and um, I'm, I'm not worried about it. Now, what, what did I mean by that? Well, ultimately, that meant that he wouldn't have to pay the debt that he owed. Well, who's going to pay it? Me. Every single time that your sins are forgiven, somebody has to pay for that debt. It's still owed. Who pays for it? Well, in this case, it's always the person that you've offended. It's the person who has eaten the debt. That's what happens in terms of our forgiveness. God has eaten the debt himself. There's no blood involved, thankfully, in the car accident that I had, so I didn't ask him, well, I need a little bit of shedding of blood to make up for this. But in terms of God and and sin and his holiness, every little sin in our eyes demands death because it's a rebellion against a holy God. Every one of them, in order to be forgiven of even the smallest sin, death has to occur. A substitutionary death has to take place. And so we see the sacrificial system is put in place to constantly remind the Israelites that every time you sin, just as Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, eating that forbidden fruit, every time you deserve to die. And that forgiveness can only come if something is paid in your place. That's the first thing that the blood of Christ shows. Here's the second. The shed blood of Christ also signifies the cutting of a new covenant and the inauguration of an inheritance. In O. Palmer Robertson's uh, classic book, uh, it's called Christ of the Covenants. He explains simply that a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. An easy way of defining it, I think. It's a, a bond of life and death demonstrating that one who makes any promises to another party, if he doesn't keep them, he's wishing judgment upon himself, wishing death upon himself. So blood is the symbol of the cutting of the covenant. We see this in Genesis 12, later Genesis 15, when God confirms his covenant with Abraham. If you remember, God had made all these promises to Abraham. 
that he was going to give him this godly seed, multitude of descendants, give him the promised land, make him the father of many nations, and God ensures that promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. And so what he does is he tells Abraham to take a number of different animals and cut them in half and lay them on two different sides of a path, if you will. And then afterwards, God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And as he's sleeping, the Lord is speaking to him in a dream. And he's explaining to him again how he intends on keeping every promise that he's ever made to Abraham. And then afterwards, we see this theophany of sorts. We see something of a a flaming torch and a smoking firepot go in between the two cut pieces of the sacrificial animals. Now, what does that mean? Why isn't Abraham a part of it? God is basically saying that death would occur to anyone who doesn't keep their promise, and yet God is the only one who walks through. He's basically saying, if I ever break my word to you, Abraham, judgment should come. If any way this covenant is broken, in any way, death should occur. Now, the difference is later on in the Mosaic Covenant, Moses and the Israelites are not asleep. God doesn't merely make promises unto them, but they also promise to be obedient to him. They promise to keep all the law, all the covenant that God gives unto them. And so immediately after this vow, this oath takes place by the people of Israel, immediately that's when Moses begins to sprinkle them all with blood because they can't keep it. And anyone who can't keep it is deserving of death. Death is the natural outcome for anyone who breaks his promise. And so we see that in this case, instead of their own blood being shed, he institutes the sacrificial system to show that God himself will pay the penalty. God himself will eat the debt. God himself will have his own blood shed. Now, we don't see that clearly yet in the beginning because we see the animals that are constantly representing that, but it's not until we finally get to the end we see that all of these animals never accomplished any forgiveness. The animals never accomplished any atonement, but they're constantly pointing to God himself who would come and pay the penalty for their breaking of the covenant, would pay and to be judged for that. We see that the same words that Moses uses when he initiates this covenant as a mediator between God and Israel. Moses was told to say this, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, in the New Testament, we see Jesus taking up the exact same phraseology. Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he says, this cup that is poured out for you, he says, is the new covenant in my blood. He's purposely showing how all of these animals, all the bloodshed that all occurred over those thousands of years is all pointing to his blood. Jesus is using the same language to show that he has initiated a new covenant as the new mediator instead of Moses, instead of the angels, it's Jesus. But the question comes down to, and I think it's a good question, if this is a new covenant in Christ, why in the world in your Bibles do we call it the New Testament? You ever thought about that? <laughs> we got actually some people raising their hands in the back, about to ready to answer. That's good. 
Why is it called New Testament? It comes from this one passage here in Hebrews chapter 9. If you look with me briefly, I want to read them with you one more time because it's very important we understand his argument. Verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read it one more time to you. Therefore he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as, as long as the one who made it is still alive. It's very interesting in these verses, the author of Hebrews moves from the concept very quickly of cutting a covenant to enacting a will. And he's not equating the two, but he's showing the significance of, of both of them at the same time. Now, some of your translations may not see this very well because it might translate the same word exactly the same way each time, constantly using the word covenant. You'll notice in the ESV it, it uses the word covenant in verses uh, 15 and 18, but then it uses the word will in verses 16 and 17. It's the same word in the Greek, but in the first use of the word, it's using it in terms of the sense of a covenant, an agreement between parties, whereas the second one is it's, it's in reference to this concept of a, a will and testament, a legal document as opposed to a sacrificial animal in that regard. As I said before, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered by God, as Owen Palmer Robertson said. A will, on the other hand, is a, a legal document but set aside for the purpose of laying aside certain properties, certain benefits for the beneficiaries in that regard. Whereas under the old covenant, blood needed to be shed by each, by either party for breaking the promise that they had made. In the New Testament, or the new will of God, blood needed to be shed by the benefactor in order that the beneficiaries might receive his inheritance. You follow me? Strangely, without having this text in mind at all, I finally decided to get a will about a week and a half ago. Not because of COVID, not because of the book of Hebrews, but because strangely I asked my wife just sporadically one day, uh, getting ready for our anniversary, I said, what would you think if on our anniversary we went skydiving? And to my surprise, she said, that sounds great. And so she was really considering it, and I thought, okay. Uh, then it dawned upon me, well, we, I don't even have a will. <laughs> if both of us die jumping out of a plane, that's probably not going to be very good. So I said, maybe next year for our anniversary, uh, but until, and up, only until I get a will in place. So I just, I, I finally have a will. Really good. You should applaud for that. That's, 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 that's rare for me to do something that far in advance. But in, in the document that I signed, I looked at it very carefully, but it basically says in a nutshell that whatever I have left at that point will be distributed equally between my three daughters. And, uh, but, but only if both my wife and I both die. It's, it's stipulated very clearly in the words. If, if we're alive, they get nothing. Absolutely nothing. Maybe a few dollars here or there. But certainly not my estate. Now, the whole thing depends entirely upon both of us dying. That's a strange document, is it not? It depends upon our blood being shed. This is the author's point, um, uh, that, that Jesus had to die, not only in order to cut this covenant 
in order to keep his word and to cover the broken word of the sinners, but also he had to die in order to ensure that his righteous standing and all the blessings and all the, the prophets that come from that, along with eternal life, would be given to his beneficiaries, but only if he dies. He has to die in order that his beneficiaries might receive the promise of all the good things he has promised. For this New Testament could not be put into effect without the proven death of a testator. Thus Christ's blood had to be shed both to bear the curse of our disobedience and also to give us the blessing of his obedience. You see, it's always both. Christ didn't die on the cross merely to take away our sins. He also had to die in order to give us his righteous standing and all of the benefits that come from that, and most importantly, our eternal inheritance. That's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. In other words, he has to die in order to give you his riches. He has to have his blood shed in order that you might have eternal life. Now, what's unique about Christ's death, though, what's unique about his will, if you will, is that he's the only testator, meaning the one who, who makes the promises to his beneficiaries, who also is the mediator of his own will. Typically, that doesn't happen, right? Because the person who makes the promises is dead, and so they can't mediate the disputes between the parties afterwards. But because he immediately, in three days, rises from the dead, the testator again takes up his role as mediator and gives you all that God has promised just as he promised. That's the second thing that we see through the shedding of blood. And finally, the third. The shed blood of Christ also shows us the cleansing of our conscience and the attainment, the full attainment of our atonement. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, the author states that according to the original arrangement, that is at Mount Sinai, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, all of that sprinkling of blood, it cleansed nothing on the inside of the man. It never cleansed his conscience. It only cleansed his body. It only cleansed his outward conformity unto the law, and therefore his conscience was still unclean. His conscience was still unclear in his standing with God because that could change at a moment, even though at that moment of the, the, the sacrifice that as it was offered unto God, he had relief from that particular sin in a moment later. He can commit the exact same sin and still have the judgment of God bear upon him. It did not cleanse his conscience. Therefore, the law of God was continuing to accuse his conscience and reminding him that his sin deserves death. Could never have a resting peace in God because that still could change. Now, compare that predicament in verse, with verse 14. Under the new covenant, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Of course, that's not to say that the Christians no longer sin or that our conscience no longer convicts us of sin. What he's saying is that the conscience no longer condemns us to hell because our sin is still an offense to holy God and it's not been covered. It's, it's covered completely. His, his blood has purified our conscience completely. We no longer have to fear where we stand with God because our, not only have our sins that we've just committed been covered, the sins that we committed years ago have been covered, even the sins of our youth, and even the sins that we have yet to commit are covered and forgiven. And therefore, we can have a clear conscience before God. Look at what uh, Paul says, 1 Timothy 3.19. We hold the mystery of the faith in Jesus Christ with a clear conscience. It's because of our faith in Christ who has purified our conscience, who has fully attained our atonement, that we no longer have to wonder where we stand. Hebrews 10, verse 22, similarly, we're going to see this next chapter. The, the writer exhorts us to draw near to God with a heart, a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you think about it, the, 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 what baptism is meant to symbolize, same concept, instead of the sprinkling of blood over the outer part of the body, it's the sprinkling of water to show God has cleansed the conscience. It's a done deal. It's not a, a partial cleansing. It's full. It's been paid in full. And this is why we talk about, and I've mentioned it to you many times before, we'll say it again, I'm sure. When Jesus dies on the cross, one of the last things he says is, it is finished. Again, it's an accounting term that he's using, meaning it has been paid in full. The debt has fully been paid. Long before you were ever born, he paid it. There's nothing that we owe unto God anymore since Christ has fully paid the penalty. Because he has forgiven us our sins through faith in Jesus Christ, our conscience is clean, our conscience is clear. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin that had left that crimson stain, what is it now? White as snow. Fully paid. It's like the doctor in the rural village who kept a record of all of his transactions before he died. Uh, at his death, all of his books were examined very carefully by his wife a good wife in that regard. Several entries, though, he had drawn a, a, a red line through the names, uh, a number of names in, in his record book. And to the right of those names, he wrote, forgiven, too poor to pay. Unfortunately, his wife was not of the same disposition, insisting that these debts still needed to be settled. She filed a suit before the proper court. When the case was finally heard, the judge asked her, is this your husband's handwriting in red? And she admitted that it was, and the judge said, well, not a court in the land can touch those then whom he has forgiven. Who can condemn those whom Christ has justified? He says it's done. It's been paid. You're forgiven. 
You're free and clear. You have a clear conscience because Christ has paid it all. Writ with his own blood. Now, it's very important to understand this. The, the reason why I'm emphatic that we don't have an altar, but rather a table, the Lord's table, is because there's no need for any more sacrifices. We do not celebrate the Eucharist, which is a constant suffering again of Christ to pay for sins. No, it's in direct opposition to what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. It has been done once and for all. It will never occur again. It never needs to occur again. His suffering has won our salvation. His suffering has won our atonement. There is no sense of, uh, again, same concept. None of us wear a cross on our neck with Jesus hanging on it. Why? Because he doesn't suffer anymore. His suffering has won. He's paid it all. He's not on the cross anymore. It's done. It's free. You're clear. You can't add anything to it. I was talking to someone the other day um, who had said that um, I asked them why, why they thought they were going to heaven. And he said, well, I'm, I'm trying to do my best. I said, no. I said, your best is not good enough. If you want to please God on your own, you have to die. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy him. Because your sin deserves death. doesn't matter how many good things you think you're doing. You'll never satisfy God through your good works. You'll only satisfy him through your death. The only way that Christ will be satisfied through works is through the death of Christ, through his righteous works. There's no other way. We have to come by faith in the blood of Christ, his shed blood as a substitution for our death, as a substitution for our life. There's nothing that we can offer to add anything to that. There's nothing that Christ would ever offer to add anything to that. It's all been done. The, the, the church, there's a reason why there's no more bloodshed. There's a reason that the two sacraments that we hold to in the church are bloodless sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, there's no shedding of blood. They're both to remind us of what Christ has already done. He's already accomplished it. He's won our salvation once and for all. Praise God for such a great and full salvation. Of course, that salvation only applies to those who trust Christ as their substitute. Anyone who attempts to meet with God apart from that will only have their bloodshed and the prospect of eternal damnation to look forward to. It's either our shedding of blood or Christ shedding of blood. It's either our eternal damnation or the inheritance of eternal life through the will of Christ that he has cut through his own blood. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the blood of Christ. Both wicked, both evil, both evil conscience until Christ cleanses the conscience with his own blood. 
and attains that atonement once and for all. Where do you stand? Are you washed in the blood? The wonder-working power of the blood of Christ, you know it. It's only through Christ. There's no other way. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to bring these truths before our minds, that we might understand them, that we might believe them, that we would truly listen to what the, the gospel words are saying in the freedom that is given to those who know Jesus Christ, the peace and the joy and the assurance that is given to those who know Jesus Christ. Lord, why, why would we walk in darkness anymore when the light is so bright? Why would we walk in bondage to our sin anymore when there's such freedom in Jesus Christ? Lord, help us all. The believers, help us to know and trust and rest in the shed blood of Christ for those who have not yet come to that faith in Christ. Lord, convict their conscience even now. Let their conscience not rest until they seek the covering of the perfect blood of Christ, we pray.